Welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and you're listening to the bird song of an American robin, recorded by today's guest, Gordon Hampton. Gordon is an acoustic ecologist, also known as the sound tracker. For decades, he traveled around the world to record sounds of nature, or as he puts it, to record the quiet. I started the conversation by asking Gordon what he learned during the COVID pandemic when we had a glimpse of our world without the usual human-made noise pollution. I can tell you about my personal experience with quiet um, because I, first of all, when COVID broke out and for here in the Seattle area, that was late February, early March, my wife uh, pleaded for me not to go into the Amazon uh, because she didn't like this new thing that was appearing in the news. And I I just said, ah, you know, I'm not going to let it. I need to go to the Amazon. You know, that's my church. That's my go-to spot. Uh, everything will be all right. And then I went deep into the Amazon uh, for a couple of weeks so far that, of course, we're off-grid and everything on a sound recording trip to the lakes region of the Equatorian Amazon, right on the border of where Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador meet. And um, on leaving that, that, by the way, I have to say, was just a magic, charmed experience. The lake itself is absolutely so still, right? It's a mirror surface. You can't tell really which way is up and which way is down where the real clouds are. It was just so perfect and the colors vibrant and a supercell thunderstorm came through one night that made it all the more exciting because I love thunderstorms. I absolutely love them. And that's how I actually got into listening and sound recording in, in the first place. And the, um, the, there was so much lightning and thunder occurring that I was at the edge of the water and the ground actually lifted up around me, right? Actually lifted up around me. It was just, just, I mean, when you, when you have that experience, you're not just hearing it, you're feeling it, right? It was a full body experience. So that, that was great. And then of course it's time to go home on schedule. Uh, well, we were stopped on a back road by a military roadblock that asked us at gunpoint to get out for a health inspection. And that was my first clue that the world had changed in two weeks. All right. Um, the other surprise was I needed a boarding pass to get into the airport at Quito. Just saying I had a ticket was not enough. And when I boarded my American Airlines flight, a few minutes before midnight, we took off. The pilot announced we were the last jet to leave by law in Ecuador. When we changed planes in Quito, in uh, Houston, excuse me, when we changed planes in Houston to get the flight to Seattle, you know, the flight from Quito to Houston was packed. The flight to Seattle had six people on board and I was one of them. And I was thinking, huh, so nobody wants to go to Seattle, huh? <laughs> and then when I got to the airport uh, at SeaTac, um, there my wife was, she didn't even wanna hug me. She had a face mask on because I was the international traveler. I was dragging net through you know, shoulder to shoulder with thousands of people. And um, we lived in Port Townsend at the time. Currently, we live uh, in West Seattle. To be, uh, we made that move during COVID to be close to our grandchildren. And, but when I then got home to Port Townsend, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. I woke up in the morning and um, of course, for a lot of people, the quiet at first was alarming, not calming, okay? 
when it's quiet, what is going to happen next, right? We're all kind of waiting to hear what's going to happen next. But for the birds outside, it was for some of them the first opportunity they had to sing in the natural ambience that they evolved in. And I was listening to an American Robin since this was spring, um, hear its own voice clearly for the first time. And songbirds, um, as a general rule, do learn their songs from their parents. And if they're learning their songs from their parents, if they're in a noise polluted place, they can't hear all the nuances. The parents who possibly grew up in a quieter time, quieter generation are using this lost on the young ones, right? So you, through each generation, as the noise pollution increases, we expect and do find in uh, sound recordings over a period of time, birds become simpler. All right, their songs are actually evolving and only that which performs well to deliver the message winds up being used, all right? But the messages become dumbed down messages of life, okay? Sounds uh, a little bit like yeah. human. Oh yeah, you know, in this information age, urban environments are very much, um, you know, unintelligent environments. There's not much information there except, and the definition of noise pollution in acoustic ecology is relatively loud, simple meaning sound that denies access to often complex, meaningful, data-rich sounds. And I'll just footnote this by saying the um, densest form of information known in the biological wor world is a chirp of a prairie dog, which that one chirp in a prairie dog town um, can carry information of where the intruder is, who the intruder is, how fast they're moving, and what they look like, and with probable intent in a single chirp. This is the result of science, okay? So the, but now back to the robin that's singing in Port Townsend, I noticed it, it seemed to be suffering that morning from a case of stage fright. It was like, not doing its regular, and I'll try to, I'll try, usually a robin, it's like, I think of it as the march of spring, you know, in the morning it wakes up and it flies to its song post with a little chertle, and then it goes, and it, it starts out slow, but then it picks up and then it's truly a march, you know, nothing's going to stop the flow of spring, right? And the American Robin is uh, quite a performer. They do it proudly where Pacific Wrens might sing from the, the a recluded, a reclusive position in a hemlock bough. The Robin is right out there and ready to take on all challengers and hoping to attract a mate, establish a territory. And it's important that they establish the right size territory because that is the food base to feed the young, all right? Now, if noise pollution comes in, what happens is that if a robin says to itself, oh, well, I can't really hear that other robin, um, I'll let it stay there. We're in a non-noise polluted area. I go, I'm, I'm tired of hearing that other male robin sing. I'm gonna kick him off my property. Okay, and would establish a larger food base, a larger territory. So robins um, in a noise polluted area, besides singing simply, they're also running a little lean on the nest, you know, looking a little harder for food and maybe having to overlap with other robins. Or, uh, and over time, we would expect it to adjust by, you know, lower survivability among robins. And incidentally, there is a generally a 25% decline in songbird species as we've seen noise pollution increase, yet science has not connected the two dots yet. Um, it's obvious, though, to a listener that clearly 
we don't need to go to the neotropical forests, their overwintering ground of the songbirds to look for the villain. It's right here at home. And it has to do with um, communication among animals is just as essential as food and water and shelter. Okay. If they, and if they can't communicate, they can't, you know, successfully, uh, you know, pair and the whole thing, they can't detect predators, uh, noise pollution is, I would easily say that noise pollution is far, we think it's annoying to us. And yes, um, UNESCO, World Health Organization tells us that in Western Europe alone, um, you know, the number of millions of human life years lost each year because of noise pollution and the stress that it produces, right? It's an invisible killer, right? And, um, but is far more devastating for wildlife because besides the stress that it builds for them, um, they still need to complete their life cycle and they don't have cell phones. They don't send text messages or send email. Very obvious, but think how much we use it today and we don't communicate on the noisy street corner. Now back to the robin that's singing in Port Townsend, right? And he has trouble. He's like, didn't know that his voice was capable of doing so many things, right? All of a sudden he's coming, becoming aware, not only of his ability to create nuance and what is he going to do with that, but he's hearing his echo for the first time too. What does the echo mean, all right? And the echo is not the same everywhere, but the echo itself, just like Thoreau says, is the second sound, right, of the original sound. So um, fast forward two weeks later, he was a well-adjusted American Robin that belted out some of the best songs I've heard in years. All right? Yes. So, you know, he had his life back. He had a strong sense of his own identity. And he was quite pleased with himself. You know, <laughs> it was pretty good. So it was fun to um, have that occupy my time as I was wondering how long COVID is going to last. Interestingly enough, though, we did adjust. And not only did we adjust, but we began to listen to our neighborhoods, all right, including the birds, right? But we began to listen to our neighborhoods. We could hear our neighbors' voices. There were very few cars. And when we did hear a car, we could tell exactly what kind of car and how far away it was. And if they were speeding or going slow, we had an information rich environment again. And because science knows that quiet is healing, we were building our immunity. Okay. We were lowering our stress hormones and building our immunity. This is something that has never been talked about. You know, it's been like, this, this was great. Now, with Clyde Parks International, I noticed a profound difference. We started in 2018. And in, I think it was 2019 that we had our first um, quiet park down in Ecuador. While the, during the pre-COVID time at Quiet Parks International, every inquiry that we made to a potential recipient of a Quiet Park award and candidate location wanted to know why quiet was important. Okay? Why is quiet important? And so their park was quiet, but it wasn't really being managed for quiet. So why should they manage it for quiet? And why is quiet important? Or another way of saying, why is quiet valuable? It hadn't occurred to them. No, no. And even though we are talking about national park units in the United States and on the list of protected natural resources in their management policy is natural quiet 
and separate but related from that, separately listed, is natural soundscape. Okay, so we have two things which are mandated to be protected, but no plan for protection, no budget for protection, and therefore, why should we stop what we're doing over here in our highway repair section or our uh, septic system um, upgrade and uh, give attention to quiet? And you know, as soon as you, somebody asks you why quiet is important, it could be a long conversation and you can save it for later that it's gonna be half, because information does not form belief. Information never forms belief, experience does, okay? Right. And once we believe something, then we look at the information around us to support our beliefs but it's experience that ultimately guides us, roots us as we navigate towards the future. COVID comes along, the pandemic, and, and huge things happened. The world became so quiet that seismologists for the first time were able to listen to the earth in more greater detail than they had ever been able to before. In other words, our noise was shaking the earth. All right. Well, now the seismologists are getting busy and they go, wow, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And the whole world is quiet. And as people build their immunity, calm down, begin to enjoy being around home and not stuck in that long commute back and forth every day to a job that they were uncertain about in the first place, blah, blah, blah. Um, they experience quiet and they have time to think. And we have time to think about things that really are important. And we have time to think our own thoughts. And all of a sudden, even though all the ingredients were there before, except quiet, for Black lives to matter. I mean, the events have happened many, many times in the past, but all of a sudden, it does matter. Why does it matter? It matters to us because we are more in touch with who we are. Right. And we have time to actually think in quiet and make the decisions. Fast segue to Mark Twain, for example. I can go on and on about Mark Twain, but he, in his famous novels, always used silence as the environment to place his childhood characters in the lead, Huck Finn, on the silence of the Mississippi River when he's been separated from Jim, that he makes the transformation to free-thinking adult and accepts his fate in going to hell for helping a runaway slave, okay? Even though he knows it's certain that he'll go to hell, he also knows that he deserves to be helped. It's the right thing to do. That happens in silence. In, in um, Tom Sawyer, it happens in the silence of the cave. And when we read Mark Twain's autobiography, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Mark Twain, not the people who wrote his biography, but Mark Twain starts talking about the importance of sound and listening and silence in his life. Yet the biographers don't give it any attention because our culture since the 1800s has become deaf, so deaf in its ability to listen to each other that we now think that sight is more important than sound. Even though all species, all species, animal species, have the ability to hear, but not all animal species have the ability to see. Sound carries information that is not just relevant to being alive, it's necessary for being alive, right? And, um, and I can go on and on about that. In the 1800s, though, when we go back to the, to the literature of the 1800s, we don't just read about sights. We read about sights, sounds, smell. We are uh, um, sensory literate, okay? Both the writer and the reader, okay, are sensory literate. It's filled. And as we 
move further along in the industrial revolution and where noise pollution and transportation really begin to take off, sound disappears from American literature. And we have the uh, press, all right? Visual information is simple technology. Um, so we can print, we can advertise, mass media comes out, people are reading for the first time, and we just replace oral history with written accounts, sketches, and photographs. There's this huge cultural transformation, but not a huge transformation in who we are genetically unchanged from our ancestors of 35,000 years ago. So here we have the anthropos, the first anthropos since the start of the Industrial Revolution, and we have a chance for time, like Huck on the river or Tom Sawyer in the cave, to be alone and in quiet and fathom our existence. I'm going to wrap it up by saying, since COVID, no one asks us anymore why quiet is important. They want to know what it takes to be the next quiet park. And we have an urban quiet park in Taipei. We have an urban quiet park in London. And speaking of, of quiet, yeah. we, and I don't want to mute myself, but uh, <laughs> there's now a helicopter flying over. Yeah. Yes, and, and right. this guy is here in right. Washington, D.C., and this is part mm -hmm. of our everyday existence. Oh yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. The acoustic environment is a shared resource. There's no way that we can um, get around that, all right? The way wildlife have done it is that whether they're by the ocean, by a waterfall, which we consider that, you know, you can consider that to be noise pollution if you're a message sender, all right? But wildlife have time to adapt their songs and move into that niche because they're singing and sending messages that can compete with broad spectrum white noise, all right? What they do is they create a song structure that doesn't use low frequency, all right? And it has high degree of amplitude and frequency modulation that the, or the voice of wildlife is actually tuned so that it performs well in the environment. And so windy conditions is another example that knocks it out. But now you bring in another species and then another species and this other species, they want to use the same shared resource and what they have to do, and it's the same for food or anything else, they have to partition the resource. So if you're a frog, pick, pick you know, the late afternoon when it's um, warm enough, you're cold-blooded, and if you're a bird pick the morning time because you're just waking up and you want to establish, reestablish your territory. Yeah, of course. Yeah, this has been going on and on. So you can listen to just a few seconds of an ambient nature recording, all right, and tell where it is on the planet, what time of day, and likely the season. Wow. So tell me, your bio says that you traveled three times around the world. Chasing the quiet. <laughs> well, um, I can't say that I chase noise away. Um, maybe the noise chases me to the quiet. Um, I, um, a fugitive, perhaps. Um, only recently have we begun to establish quiet places, right? But for the last 40 years, I've become quite good at identifying places on earth that are still worth listening to and are free of noise pollution, relatively free of noise pollution. There is no place that's humanly accessible that is entirely free of noise pollution. Um, and for those theorists that say, well, we got the poles, the North Poles and the South Pole, and okay, the North Pole, yeah, uh, go ahead. I've flown over the North Pole on my way to London many times. Okay. And then for the South Pole, well, uh, you probably won't go to the South Pole, 
But on your way getting there, the way you get there is through snowmobiles and McCarty Station is powered by a nuclear reactor or diesel generator, uh, depending on what they're currently using. And there's very little silence there. Um, the big surprise that occurs over and over again to those that recommend new quiet places for me is that the person who recommends it, even though they might be a wildlife officer, et cetera, have a, um, a noise-induced hearing loss that they are unaware of, right? Wow. And if you have quiet as the result of being disconnected, it's a whole different experience than have quiet because you are connected. And what we are talking about is the auditory horizon, very key. So what is the auditory horizon when you stand in Washington, D.C. today? But what was the auditory horizon? How far could you hear the furthest? noise producing event, sound producing event during the COVID lockdown. The auditory horizon was huge. Yeah. Right, was. was huge, right? And you weren't having uh, all those flights coming out of um, national, right downtown, you know, taking congressmen that were just trashing that urban environment. No traffic, no yeah. cars, no but traffic, no yeah. parties. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Um, so the, I, I think that across the board, uh, most observers and field recorders have been impressed on how quickly wildlife and marine life have begun to flourish again just really never never missed a beat. It's a new opportunity. They aren't going to let it wait. And boom, they're out there taking advantage of it. Um, species that had been not unable to nest near highways because they've been unable. Jesse Barber at Barber Sensory Lab at Boise State University can speak all about how highway noise eliminates species from nesting in that area for reasons of noise pollution and the inability to communicate, um, you know, those species were able to go back in and nest again. And yes, we have ramped up, but we aren't talking about information. We're talking about experience. And all of us who have spent the last two years, right? I've, I mean, mood-wise, it's over. Sure, we're we're still dealing with it. My wife and I still wear masks when we went out to a restaurant, but the restaurant was open and it was, you know, I mean, and mood wise, we're all done with it. We've had our time. We're vaxxed. Yeah. We're doing it. For um, sure. So, and we're, and everybody's noticing um, how the noise pollution is ramping up again. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that, but now we know quiet. We no longer have to ask ourselves why quiet is important. We can just join together, look around your kitchen, look around my office. Everything we have is because someone created it and designed it and it all happened. We can really have whatever we want. Do we want quiet or do we want noise? All right. And I, I've never heard. Any well, no, I did hear one bartender tell me he hated quiet. Um, and so I asked him, um, oh, you know, because I was I just finished recording a hockey game at Madison Square Garden for a video game. This uh -huh. is a younger gig. And he said, Well, what are you doing here? And I, I told him what I was doing, but I said my main line of work was recording quiet. And that's when he said, I hate quiet. So why do you hate quiet? And he says, it's because I feel I'm not where anything's happening. I want to be in the center of where everything's happening. My apartment is right next to a raised highway and I sleep with my window open. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> How old is he? Very young, I'm sure. Uh, he was a father. 
Oh, he wow. was a father in his, um, I'm going to guess, uh, early 40s. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there is such a thing as noise addiction because you can get heavy dose, doses of noise that um, stimulate the pleasure center of the brain. And if you're deprived of high noise levels, you will exhibit uh, similar symptoms to nicotine withdrawal, even. Um, morphine withdrawal, all kinds of addictions, okay? Um, but the usual case is, is that we don't get addicted, but we do habituate to noise. What's mm -hmm. important to understand in, in the study that I particularly read about and found interesting is they checked people into a motel. And the researchers knew there were railroad tracks right behind the motel, okay? And the subjects were getting paid to sleep and they could go away for their work during the day. They just needed to sleep in the room. Okay. Well, their, their blood samples are being taken so that they can monitor the stress hormones in the blood. And after the first night, you know, of not sleeping very well because they were up all night with the roaring trains, um, it was no surprise to anybody that they were all stressed out. Okay. Right. At the end of the week, however, they're sleeping through the night. The uh, surprise was that the stress hormones were still at the same high levels as earlier, that the mind habituated, but the body still listened and the body was still suffering a health loss. And that actually sounds quite terrible that, that you're used to being so highly stressed. So tell me then, in your travels around the world, have you noticed any difference culturally in different places oh, wow. in terms of the level of habituation to noise, level of tolerance? Oh, to noise, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, culturally, it's sure. Um, for example, in Nicaragua, it seemed as though not everybody had electricity in rural Nicaragua. So it seemed if someone had electricity, they definitely liked to play music as loud as their electricity would allow them to play it. And I think that culturally, it almost seemed like distortion was the desired effect. Okay. You add some barking dogs in there and the <laughs> bus that comes into town to pick up commuting workers. Um, it's like the new church bell because the, the bus arrives at five o'clock in the morning and it lays on the horn in the center of town. Right. So everybody can wake up and in the next 10 minutes, continue sleeping once they get in the bus to make the long drive to working in Managua. All right. Um, and then you have uh, Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo was very impressive because the asphalt in Tokyo did not appear to use gravel, it appeared to use sand. And also the tread on the tires were finer than the treads on the tires allowed in the United States. So tire noise, which is most of the noise of cars and vehicles, right? was substantially reduced. I was amazed how quiet wow. Tokyo was. In downtown Tokyo, you could hear your own footsteps where you simply don't in Washington, D.C. and New York or, City. Or New York City, oh. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Also, in Shinjuku train station, where, oh gosh, two and a half million people pass through every day, people didn't chatter, okay? And you could hear the swish of clothes. Okay, it was it was neat, and wow. um, and the the footwear was soft soled, so you didn't really hear the footsteps. You you could on some that were still wearing the leather soles, but generally you didn't hear the footsteps. And also the older people, um, they still did the walk where it's more of a shuffle as if you're wearing sandals from the old days, right? So the, the 
experience the pedestrian experience, even with high numbers of people in Tokyo, was very different than in other places, which I wow. thought when I was in Canada at Balf, um, Banff um, uh, Golf Course there, uh, Banff Springs Golf Club, uh, there to record, to actually do a sound map of that for a video game where I was using my skills for acoustic ecology to map out the whole thing and do the, for the simulation of the video game. Uh, I was treated once again because at Banff Springs, for some reason, they had a high percentage of Japanese golfers there, except this time they were wearing golf shoes. And so you hear the where an American would walk by or a Canadian would walk by. Wow. And then comes a couple of Japanese golfers. Wow. So th these are quiet places, right? And as a result of being quiet, they become information rich again, right? Yeah. We, we, aren't, we aren't like, uh, I'll just speak personally uh, for myself that it's not about going home, turning on the TV or going online to be entertained. The day itself is entertaining. You know, you're treated to the uniqueness of every location, right? And the information that it provides, and perhaps only you know, and it's not made up, it's not scripted information, it's the real world, right? And that's empowering. You know you're alive. But now that the noise has returned, you know, now that we've crawled out of our lockdowns and so on, what have you noticed? about wildlife, about the American robin that you described earlier? Well, I've noticed um, that I don't notice as much, okay? Because I too am listening through noise pollution, right? And my wife and I both notice, like when we left Port Townsend and came to West Seattle, we noticed because uh, Port Townsend has a paper mill there. And there was, uh, even now that there was no traffic sound in Port Townsend, there was the paper mill in Port Townsend and it would constantly go day and night. But you'd hear it, especially at night because that's when sound propagates the best. Yeah. We got to West Seattle, there was no traffic, no mill. In West Seattle, it was absolutely as if we're sleeping at a resort somewhere on a tropical island you know it was so quiet and pleasant we slept with our windows open so we could hear the water and the waves even though i'm looking here and i'll show it to you it's got to be an eighth of a mile away okay. wow, yeah. and we we're listening clearly to the information that the waves were telling us about the prevailing weather and the state of the tide we don't hear any of that now. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, I do want to say that, you know, the noise doesn't have much to tell us anymore. All right. We've studied that. What we haven't studied is the quiet. And we haven't studied the quiet, except hypothetically and using the null hypothesis, largely because there's so little left. Okay. And so if you study quiet per se in a lab setting and in a, on anechoic chamber, for example, it's not natural quiet. It's artificial quiet. And it doesn't contain the faint information. And faint information, the faint sounds, has been the driving force of evolution in the animal kingdom for a very long time. It's like becoming. You want to become more and more sensitive to sound waves because then you get information that others may not have, right? It's all about uh, sensory data acquisition, makes you a more powerful individual 
and especially, you know, a population of species or whatever. That is like, as we become noisier, hopefully we won't forget. Um, and certainly for folks in Washington, um, DC and the metropolitan area that live in the, the bureaucratic bubble, I would like to say that when we save quiet and when we save the quiet places that remain on the planet, when we look at those quiet places that exist, whether it's Boundary Waters Canoe Area, whether it's Zabalo River Wilderness Quiet Park down in Ecuador, uh, whether it's Haleakala, when we look at those quiet places, what do we find? We find places that are taking carbon out of the atmosphere. We find places that are producing the oxygen we breathe. We find one of the most biodiverse places on earth, habitats that are still intact, clean, not only acoustically, but clean in terms of toxins and everything else. These, when we save quiet, we save so much else, right? And it's a little bit arrogant for us to say, just because we evolved in a, be a beautiful, natural, pure, pristine world of quiet and stable habitats, it doesn't mean that we need it in order to survive. We'll have to study this. Well, how long are you going to study it, okay? We've had 22 years of the National Park Service's um, Dark Sky and Natural Sounds Division. Where are quiet parks here? Okay. Un untie their hands. Untie their hands. Let them do their job. And it's about time that aviation, the number one um, noise, the one number one in polluter of wilderness areas that aviation can understand that this is quiet was listed as one of four factors that will um, lead economic recovery for the travel industry post COVID. All right. Another was dark sky. They're all, it's all about reconnecting with nature and becoming healthier again ourselves, okay? And it's about time for the FAA to understand and uh, commercial airlines to understand that even while they might not be able to do much about the noise impact that they have on the places that they land and take off, they can really make a difference when they choose to fly around our wilderness areas and fly people to parts of the world to listen to the quiet that's there. By enjoying quiet and by saving quiet, this is true sustainable economic development. It's good. It's good for everyone. Good for aviation, good for us, good for wildlife. Um, and it's one of the last, I think, places we would look, right? Because we're so busy looking. Well, yeah. That's true. But tell us more about the dark skies and quiet sounds and shit of. Um, well, you would think that um, because one of the ways of locating the last quiet places today is first, I'll, I'll run you down the steps how to find a quiet place. I'll try to do this quickly. Yes. Go to the NASA, not NASA satellite image of Earth at night, okay? You'll have no problem telling the continents or the countries or the cities because the Earth is really well illuminated, all right? And you look for the dark places, okay? Mm -hmm. Where people aren't, or if people are there, at least they aren't all powered up, okay? So you look at the dark places, then you turn it into transportation maps and you look at the transportation corridors for air, land, and sea, all right? Get ready for a shock. Earth has become a beehive and that's just air traffic, okay? Look at my marine traffic app 
oh my gosh, you know, this is like a crowded duck pond. All right. <laughs> and there's, there's no, there's very little empty space left. All right. And then you look at highway, well, more than 80% of the land surface area of the lower 48 is within a half mile of a road. And when road noise travels easily for eight miles in every direction, right? And sometimes much further if, you, if a water body is connected to it for special reasons of acoustics, um, you know, it's like, you know, you do not have many places to look. So that, it, you know, just, you, <laughs> um, yeah, so then, what, but there are places. And then when you find that handful of places, then you go to Google Earth and you start pulling up the railroad tracks, you start pulling up the power lines, you start pulling up the pipelines, the gas pipelines and compression stations, the mineral extraction, the farming mechanization, and I'll put all these things together, mineral extraction. And this is why there are so few quiet places left. Right. I want to linger a little bit on the phrase you said, the dark place. Looking at satellite imagery uh, at planet Earth and then, and then seeing the dark places. And I just want to talk about dark places that go dark during wartime. Mm. Uh, you know, or shortly after wartime as, as mm -hmm. you know, some places sort of, uh, yeah, just go off the grid because of damage to infrastructure and all that stuff. Oh. Have, have you done any acoustic recording in and around places like that before, during, or after a war? In Sri Lanka, I was there recording in 1990 while the, I don't think it's, safe to say a civil war was occurring, but insurgency certainly was uh, with the Tamil Tigers. So there was occasional automatic weapons fire, which identified, you know, some sort of combat situation. And then single fire, which I assumed was wildlife poaching. But, you know, electricity at that time in rural Sri Lanka, um, hadn't reached there. Their goal in 1990 was to electrify Sri Lanka um, by the year 2000. I don't know what progress they've made to that. Uh, but at the time I was there in Sri Lanka, it was very quiet, very dark. I think that just as we found the FARC activity in Colombia um, has been good for the environment, it's kept miners and loggers out of the jungle, right? Um, and the place wild there. So there's certainly, and that brings up a whole nother line of reasoning that when you find some place on planet Earth, when planet Earth has nearly 8 billion people, and when you find a place on planet Earth that you have all to yourself, there's a reason. Okay, <laughs> just wait. Just wait. There's a catch. There is. Okay, there's something I don't know. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's the big question. There's something I don't know that's coming up to fight <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, but it really heightens the sense of listening, you know. Yeah. And what about dark skies? Well, dark skies, that's simpler. Um, maybe, you know, astronomers disagree because the ambient light pollution does influence a very large area. For example, um, I've had rural families in Forks, Washington, complain to me that the ambient light from Seattle, which is more than 60 miles distant, as the crow flies is interfering with their view of the dark sky night, okay? Mm. Um, but there, um, you know, I often when you find a quiet place, you also find a dark sky, okay? They, they do go hand in hand, right? But what, the reverse is not true. 
when you're at a dark sky park, it can be like Rainbow Bridge. It can be noisy because it's too close to a highway. Okay. And plus, um, it's not like if you go to the ridgetop at Haleakala, for example, um, the volcano in Maui, which we are going to award Haleakala Crater our quiet trail status because it's astounding how um, special uh, the Sliding Sands Trail is and going down there. But at the ridgetop, which is a popular destination, you're at 10,000 feet in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, you know, is an astounding view of the dark sky. You know, I've never actually, until then, I never saw the Milky Way in not only such a detail, but the galaxy in so many colors. Wow, that says a lot because you've yeah. traveled the world three times over. Yeah, yeah, um, it does say, say a lot. And so what was really disappointing is that the tour buses that brought people there to look at the dark sky left their engines running. running. Oh my okay? gosh. As the warming hut, because it's chilly up there, as the warming hut. And there were actual tour guide leaders with amplified voice to <laughs> explain people um, to people what they're looking at. Okay. It's like, it's like, okay. You know, well, that just ruins the whole thing. It, well, for me it did, but for others, I'm not sure they were paying money, right? Um, it, it does beg the question of, of um, what are national parks for, right? And that's a question that I think we need to continue to constantly ask ourselves and remind us of and be willing to defend our answers. Good. Well, this has been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. And now we leave you with the bird song of the American Robin, as recorded by Gordon Hampton.